Good morning. Hello. My name is David Blouse. And uh, look, if you've got your Bible handy still, you'll find it useful to keep it open to Acts chapter 2 as we look at God's Word. And let me pray for us as we do that. Heavenly Father, we ask this morning that you would uh, help us to see the significance of the resurrection, that we would know not just that Jesus rose, but what it means, and in particular what it means for us. And we ask this in the risen Jesus' name. Amen. Now, uh, if we were good Anglicans, uh, we would have a little ritual that we do on Easter Sunday. Uh, It goes something like this. The person up the front says Christ is risen and the congregation replies with with some gusto, he's risen indeed, right? So let's let's try it. Let's see how we go. You ready? You guys are the ones who've got to give it a bit of, right? Christ is risen. Very good. Now, the question this morning is, so what? I mean, sure, good. Jesus is alive. Excellent. So what? I mean, it's good for him, right? It's an excellent thing for him that he is not going to die. But where's the benefit for us? I mean, no one else has risen since, right? At least not that I'm aware of, not in the same way. Uh, He's not even with us anymore. If he was still around in in the same way that he was with the disciples, such that we get the the miracles and the healings and the feeding and the authoritative teaching and all that, that would be excellent, wouldn't it? But Christ is risen. So what? We, um, we preach Jesus' resurrection. You come to pretty much any of our church services and you're going to hear us banging on about Jesus being raised from the dead. I think the problem is that we've lost a sense of the importance. We've lost what it means that Jesus has been raised. We now treat it as a little event that happened a while back. It's kind of a useful event. We say, well, Jesus is raised, therefore the Bible must be true. For example, uh, this whole Christianity thing must be real because Jesus was raised from the dead. But it doesn't really bear all that much of an impact in our lives. Let me show you one example of it. Uh, In Acts chapter 4, just the next chapter to what we were reading, uh, we hear a little bit of the effect that this preaching had upon the early disciples. So the priests and the captain of the temple guard and the Sadducees came up to Peter and John while they were speaking to the people. They were greatly disturbed because the apostles were teaching the people and proclaiming Jesus' resurrection from the dead. They seized Peter and John and because it was evening, they put them in jail until the next day. But many who heard the message believed and the number grew to 5,000. That sounds like what we do, right? We preach Jesus' resurrection from the dead. Did you notice, though, how I misread that verse? I mean, that sounds perfectly plausible, right? It sounds perfectly normal. That's what we say, but I misread it on purpose. This is what the verse actually says. They were greatly disturbed because the apostles were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. Now, that is a completely different sentence. To proclaim the resurrection of Jesus is simply to say Jesus rose. whoop de doo But to proclaim in Jesus the resurrection of the dead is to say something completely different. It's to say that in Jesus, the dead are now being raised. Human life 
is different. Jesus' resurrection is so important, not because of the one event that it was, although that is a necessary event, but because of what it began. The resurrection of Jesus began a new age. It was one of those moments in human history that changes how humans live. There's been a bunch of them. I'm sure if you put your mind to it, you could think of some. Uh, uh, the, the first human that worked out that you could make fire. Right? Since that moment, human life has been different. The, the first human who worked out that you could bend some sticks into a circular shape and the wheel was very useful for carrying things, right? Life has been different ever since. The, the first human to work out that you could plant your own food and tend it, that you could domesticate animals rather than having to go and hunt them down. Right? These are just moments that change human life from then on. The invention of the combustion engine, right? You think of your cars and your heating and so many things that come from it. The printing press, and you want a modern one, the internet. These moments that change life, something new comes into the world that wasn't there before. Jesus' resurrection was one of those moments. The last 2,000 years have been different to every, well, the human life before then, because something new came into the world. Now, I want to be clear for a moment. I'm talking about resurrection today, Jesus' resurrection, and that is a different word to either resuscitation or reincarnation. They all sound very similar, right? Resurrection, resuscitation, reincarnation. You can be forgiven for mixing them up, but they all have very different meanings. Resurrection, the resurrection of Jesus, was a person who died properly, totally, gone, dead. In fact, not only dead, but in Jesus' case, faced the wrath of God, the punishment that comes post-death for the sin of the world that was placed upon him. And then, three days later, came back to a new type of life, an eternal, immortal, powerful new life. That's resurrection, right? Resuscitation is, well, you kind of have that moment like they have in the movies where you flatline and your heart stops beating and you stop breathing for a bit and they get the flappy paddles out, right? Poof! Running, yay! And you're back again, right? That's resuscitation. Excellent. Different to resurrection. Reincarnation, some people believe that after death you come back again as something different or someone different. Neither of those things. Resurrection, Jesus truly died and came back to a new type of life. Okay, so Jesus' resurrection begins something new. What was it? What is it that has changed in the world because Jesus was raised? Now, the story so far, as, uh, as Andrew so very helpfully gave for us, uh, Jesus, right, lived, performed miracles and taught with authority, did amazing things. He was brutally murdered. He was one of those executed criminals who aren't very good at getting themselves out of boxes. Right, dead person, buried in the tomb, Three days later, as he promised, he came back to new life. He appeared to a whole stack of people. This, this wasn't some hoax. This wasn't the biggest conspiracy theory ever made. 500 people at once he appeared to. And then he ascended into heaven. He went to heaven to prepare a new place and to send the Spirit. Now, Jesus' disciples were gathered in Jerusalem. They were waiting as Jesus had told them to. And they were waiting 
as it turned out, at the time of Pentecost. Now, Pentecost was a Jewish festival, the festival of weeks, probably 50 days after Passover. And so there were a whole stack of other people in Jerusalem, gathered from all kind of the, the known nations of the time. What happened next is this. Now, I'm going to read from the start of chapter 2 in Acts. Uh, there wasn't a reading ahead of us. Well, that's, that's okay. That was on purpose. Uh, so if you want to follow along, you will find it helpful to have Acts chapter 2. I'm going to read most of the chapter again as we go. Right? So they're all gathered. Lots of people are gathered. This is what happens. Acts chapter 2 and verse 1. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. Suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Now, they were staying in Jerusalem, God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. When they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment because each one heard them speaking in his own language. Utterly amazed, they asked, are not all these men who are speaking Galileans? How is it that each of us hears in his own native language? Parthians, Medes, Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya, Nisirene. Visitors from Rome, Jews and converts, Cretans, Arabs. We hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. Amazed, perplexed, they ask one another, what does this mean? And some, however, made fun and said, well, they've just been drinking a bit too much. Do you get the picture? It's this bizarre picture. It's as if a whole bunch of bogan whiteys from Ingleburn were all gathered in the one place and all of a sudden start speaking the wonders of God in Farsi and Tagalog and Spanish and Japanese and Samoan and the people gathered are going, what on earth is happening? How is it that this bunch of people are speaking in a way that I understand in my native tongue? I, I sometimes get a little bit of sense, this feeling that they must have had. I, I speak Spanish quite fluently. I'm, I'm, I'm as, I'm, I, my Spanish sounds like my English sounds to you, right? I, I'm, I grew up in a Spanish-speaking country. Uh, people don't believe me when I tell them that. I'm not quite sure why. I, I, I don't know what it is, right? They're like, you, you don't look like it. Um, and I have the best fun when there are other people having a conversation in Spanish because they think themselves safe. And so it's hilarious when they're just talking dirt about someone else. That's the best time, right? And they're just like, woo, woo, woo. And, and after a little while, they say, ay, ¿por qué están diciendo eso? ¿Qué les parece? And they just go, <gasps> And they're like, what do you mean? How can you speak in a way that I can understand? How is this happening? Now, I have a human reason for it. This was a miracle. The miracle of both speaking and listening as they declared the magnificent acts of God and rightly, the crowd says, what on earth is going on? What does it mean that this is happening? Peter, thankfully, explains it to them. So we get his explanation as well. So Acts chapter 2, verse 14. Then Peter stood up with the eleven. He raised his voice and addressed the crowd. Fellow Jews, he said, all of you who live in Jerusalem, let me explain this to you. Listen carefully to what I say. These men are not drunk, as you suppose. It's only nine in the morning. 
which just goes to show that they weren't Australian, by the way, because we'll have RBT guys already out. Anyway, no, he says, this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. And he quotes this Old Testament prophet named Joel. Now, Joel lived somewhere around about 900 BC, uh, so 900 years before Pastor. So to give you an idea, we're talking from the 1100s to us. Uh, how good's your history? Anyone know famous, what was famous from the 1100s? William the Conqueror, William the Conqueror sorry? Okay, yes. Uh, it was the time of the Second Crusades. So you think Saladin, like Richard the Lionheart, so it's, it's as if, actually, very interestingly, and perhaps timingly, uh, in 1163, Notre Dame Cathedral began construction. There you go, there's timely for you. But that, that's, that's the sort of time frame we're talking. It's as if Richard the Lionheart had been talking about the internet. Right? That, that's kind of what we're talking about here. The prophet Joel talking about these events that Peter witnessed. And Joel saw something very unusual. Let me show you, this is from Joel chapter 2, right? This is where this prophecy is taken from. As Joel looked forward, this is what he saw. Blow the trumpet in Zion, he says. Sound the alarm on my holy hill. Let all who live in the land tremble, for the day of the Lord is coming. It is close at hand, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and blackness, like dawn spreading across the mountains. A large and mighty army comes such as never was of old, nor never will be in ages to come. Before them, fire devours. Behind them, a flame blazes. Before them, the land is like the Garden of Eden, but behind them, a desert waste. Nothing escapes them. As Joel looked forward, he saw this day, this day of the Lord, which was a day of judgment. In fact, he saw the Lord thunders at the head of his army. His forces are beyond number and mighty are those who obey his command. The day of the Lord is great. It is dreadful. Who can endure it? Joel saw that a day would come in which God would bring an army forth in judgment. It would be terrible. It would be terrifying. It would be dreadful. It would be such a day that nobody can stand in it. It would be the very judgment of God upon all who were his enemies. But, but, Joel also saw something kind of peculiar in that same day. He saw that it wasn't just a day of judgment, but it was also a day of salvation. Joel says this, Even now, declares the Lord, Return to me with all your heart, with fasting and weeping and mourning. Rend your heart, not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love. He relents from sending calamity. Who knows? He may turn and have pity and leave behind a blessing. Joel looked forward and saw this day, the day of the Lord, that was a day of great judgment and calamity, and yet a day that also held out some hope. Maybe, maybe in this day there'll be salvation. And what was going to happen on that day? How do you know when this day was? Well, that's where we get to the bit that Peter quoted. Afterwards, Joel says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. 
Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your old men will dream dreams. Your young men will see visions. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days. I will show wonders in the heavens and on the earth, blood and fire and billows of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness, the moon to blood before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. For on Mount Zion and in Jerusalem there will be deliverance, as the Lord has said, among the survivors whom the Lord calls. Joel saw this day in which the Spirit would be poured out upon all people. And he said, that's the day. That's the day. Now Peter changes Joel slightly. Joel says that after that time the Spirit will be poured out. Peter says, Acts chapter 2 and verse 17... In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit. Very intentionally, right? This wasn't Peter just having a little moment of memory lapse. He is taking what Joel saw as one day. It's almost like a 2D thing, right? If you're looking from the past towards the future, you just see one spot. Whereas when you turn it side on, all of a sudden you see that it's a time period. In these last days. That is, you and I live... In the day of the Lord. You and I live in that age that Joel saw. The day in which God is bringing his army in judgment against his enemies. The day in which God is holding out hope, even today, that there is salvation. You and I live in the end of the world. That's the day that we live in. That's the age that we are in. We think of the end of the world as a cataclysmic one-off, right? The, the meteorite is going to crash. Yellowstone is going to erupt. The, the, the aliens, whatever it is, is going to cause it to happen, right? And no, it's an age that we live in. Now, if this is the day of the Lord, though, who is the Lord who brings judgment and who brings salvation? Joel just saw it as God. He just looked forward and saw this was God's doing. But Peter says, no. There is something different you need to understand. And in order to understand it, you need to listen to the prophet David. We listen to Joel. This is the day of the Lord because the Spirit has been poured out. Now listen to the prophet David. He was also a king, by the way. Listen to what he said about who the Lord is. Now, David, we're talking 1000 BC, right? So if Joel was 900 BC, so we're talking like from us back to the year 1000. Anyone's history good enough for the year 1000? What happened in... Uh, no, no one? Battle of Hastings, thank you. Right, the first crusades happened back then. Right, So we're, we're talking that sort of time frame. And as David looked forward, he saw something astonishing. He saw that God's king, the Lord, would be somebody on whom death had no hold. Very strange prophecy. If you can imagine someone a thousand years ago talking about someone who death couldn't hold them. You think, what? Look down at verse 25 in Acts chapter 2. David said about him, about this Lord, I saw the Lord always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. My body also will live in hope because you will not abandon me to the grave, nor will you let your Holy One see decay. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will fill me with joy in your presence. Now, David wasn't talking about himself. 
And there's a very easy way of telling that David wasn't talking about himself. Verse 29, brothers, I can tell you confident that the patriarch David died. He was buried. His tomb is here with us to this day. It's not about David. He's dead. But, verse 30, he was a prophet and knew that God had promised him on oath that he would place one of his descendants on his throne. Seeing what was ahead, he spoke of the resurrection of the Christ. See, how do you tell, how do you know who the Lord will be? Who the one who judges and who saves will be? Who is this one? Well, it's the one who is raised from death. It's the one who Hades and decay cannot hold. It's Jesus, Peter says. Look back at verse 22 for his little summary there. Men of Israel, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited to God by you by miracles, wonders and signs, which God did among you through him, as you yourselves know. This man was handed over to you by God's set purpose and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. But God raised him from the dead freeing him from the agony of death because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. Joel saw the day of the Lord. It was a day in which the Spirit was poured out. Peter says, the day has begun. This is the day the Spirit has been poured out. And who is the Lord? The Lord is the one who death could not hold. The Lord was Jesus. Now, just as an aside, if I can, if I can address from over, if you're sitting here and you're a, you're a bit of a sceptic, maybe this, you're not a Christian and you, you kind of think it's all a bit of make-believe, a bit of fairy tale, the spaghetti monster, whatever it is that you're kind of thinking. I just want to point out to you what this verse here in verse 22, right? Note what, Jesus, what Peter says about the crowd. Jesus accredited with miracles, wonders, signs, which God did among you, as you yourselves know. This isn't some sort of made-up stuff. The whole crowd would have just gone, no, right? If it wasn't true, if they hadn't seen it, if they hadn't witnessed Jesus for themselves. Or over in verse 32, again, right? As Peter said, God has raised Jesus to life and we are witnesses of the fact. We're talking about history here. These are events well attested, well documented, well recorded. This happened. Jesus lived and did the miraculous among them. Jesus was crucified and was raised. And as Peter says, his resurrection shows that he is the Lord, the one who rules for justice and judgment, and the one who saves, if only you will come to him. And so what was the summary? What's the outcome? Verse 36. Therefore, Peter says, Let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. God has made Jesus the Lord. Which, by the way, is mind-blowing. Because it means that for the first time in history, a human is seated upon the throne of God. Jesus ascended into heaven and sat down at the right hand of Jesus, the man. I mean, fully divine, fully human. For the first time in history, a human now rules over everything. He is the Lord of God's kingdom. This 
is how the world ends. The king placed upon the throne. In Christ, the resurrection of the dead. In Jesus, the resurrection has now begun. The end of the world. I, I kind of I have a love-hate relationship with, uh, with end of the world movies. You know the ones, right? There's a, uh, there's a giant meteor coming towards the earth or the volcano's going to explode or the dinosaurs have been found again or whatever it is, right? Independence Day, the aliens are coming and blow up the White House and, and so it goes. Right? I sort of have a love-hate relationship with them. I, I kind of like them, but I Am Legend has turned me off them. Uh, any, anyone seen I Am Legend? Yeah. Now, my wife and I realised with this movie that we really don't like scary movies. We cannot handle them. It's, just, it's bad, right? Horror, we just don't do it. Uh, uh, the, the real suspense kind of... We, we went in thinking that it was Will Smith does Castaway. We went in thinking, right, that it's, you know, Castaway, dude, lost on an island, kind of cool, it's kind of fun, Wilson, volleyball, right? Good times. And we thought, this is just Will Smith doing that. Last man left on earth. It's going to be great fun. Halfway through the movie, it turns into a zombie movie. And we're just like, ah! Right? The lights stayed on very late that night. We're like two o'clock in the morning, like, are we going to be? I'm going to go be listening to TV up louder. There's, there's things out there. Ooh. It didn't help that we were on holidays in Perisher in the summer. So we were the only people in the entire valley. It was like ghost town. And we're driving in at night, having seen the movie, and we're just like, we're going to die, we're going to die. Anyway, completely by the by. The point is that in all of those movies, when they discover that the world is about to end, life changes. Inevitably, life has to change. Whether it's the people who are trying desperately to stop the world from ending, right? Let's send a, a rocket up to the meteorite and let's drill a hole in it and put a bomb in the middle and blow it up and we'll all be saved. Yay, right? Uh, what was that? That was Armageddon, wasn't it? Uh, or we have to drill into the center of the earth and send a team down there to reignite the center or whatever it was that went wrong. And hey, we found dinosaurs on the way and uh, weird movies, right? But for the people who are there knowing that the world is about to end, life changes. Inevitably, there's this sense of immediacy and desperation to them. The world is going to end. What matters is what I ought to do right now. Just forget about the hobbies and, and, and the, the little wishy-washy nothings that I waste my time doing. The world is about to end. How ought we to respond to the news that Christ is risen? Well, verse 38, Peter said to them, this is what you do. The world is ending. This is what matters. Repent. Be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, the promise for you, for your children, for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. What do you do? Get right with the Lord now. Repent. Turn away from your old way of living. Turn away from your rejection of God and turn towards God. Be baptised. Take the step. You might well have been sitting in that pew and coming to church for years and years and years. And you know it all. You know it all. But you've never committed. You've never said, you know what? I, I do need to do this thing. I do need to give my life to Jesus. I do need to humbly come and repent before him. Take the step. And you too will receive this gift of the Holy Spirit, God dwelling in you. The promise is for you and for me. So what's the alternative? The alternative is you just ignore it, right? 
Who cares? For whatever you you have your reason, whatever it is. You just think for a moment about those human beings who ignored those pivotal moments in history. Right? Over here is the uh, is the caveman who works out that he can rub two sticks together and make fire. And he's now warm, he's protected from the animals, he can cook his food and get more nutrition out of it. He's in a good place. And then over here is the caveman who's like, me, no fire. Right? And he's like, still cold, still vulnerable, struggling for his daily needs. Right? The humans who ignored the wheel. No, I'm going to make my own triangular wheel. It shall be better than yours. Of course they're going to fail, right? I mean, can you even imagine today people ignoring the internet and somehow not using the resources at their disposal that comes from the knowledge that it brings? Yeah, actually, I can imagine that one. But anyway, right? The, the, the point is... Now that life is different, now that the resurrection age has begun, now that the end of the world is upon us, to live as if it isn't is utter foolishness. The Spirit has already been poured out. The last days has begun. The world will end at any minute with Jesus' return. Today is the day of salvation. Now, I wonder for a moment, though, if I can speak to those who are Christian among us. You have given your life to Jesus. You do know that the resurrection has begun, the new age. How easy is it for us to just ignore the whole end of the world bit and just get on with life? Just be consumed by the nothings, the little hobbies and the time wasters and just ignore the fact that the world is ending I mean, how could we not commit ourselves to living for our Lord, pursuing holiness for ourselves and desperately, desperately yearning for the salvation of others? I want to finish by reading for you the way that these early believers responded. Not by way of saying that we need to do what they did, but simply as a way of showing you that desperation that they had. The way that the end of the world truly did change how they lived. Right, Acts chapter 2 and verse 42. What did they do? They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe, with many wonders and miraculous signs that were done by the apostles. All the believers were together. They had everything in common, selling their possessions and goods they gave to anyone as he had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes. They ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God, enjoying the favor of all the people. The Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. It kind of reads like one of those weird cults. You know the ones where the the prophet comes along and says the world is going to end on April 23rd, 2018? That was an actual thing from last year, by the way. Uh, This group that looked at the stars and apparently they all aligned perfectly. April 23rd, 2018, Jesus returns, they said. I'm going to run with he didn't. Um, but, But the description of what they do sounds like this, right? They start selling stuff and they're together all the time and they're dedicated to the word and they're just, they're committed to this life because it's about to end. We need to be on about what Jesus is on about. I'm not saying we need to do that. Right? I'm not saying that we as a church ought to all go and flog everything we've got and, uh, every day it's potluck in the hall and, uh, we get like, but just get the sense that they had. That knowledge, the world is ending. Jesus is risen, the Lord is on the throne, judgment has begun and salvation is on offer. 
just for a little bit longer. And then it's the end. Why don't we finish where we begun? Christ is risen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ raised to new life. We thank you that we now know him to be the Lord, the Christ, your king who sits on the throne. Thank you that we now know that this is the end of the world, that we live in this age, this day of the Lord, in which Jesus is judging and in which Jesus is holding out salvation. Father, teach us to respond rightly, to repent, to turn to Jesus, to be baptised, to receive the Holy Spirit. And having done that, Father, to live in this knowledge of the day of the Lord that we are in, dedicated to you, to your people and to those around us. In Jesus' name. Amen.